This is episode 242 with sport and exercise psychologist, author of The Genius of Athletes, and 308 marathoner, Dr. Noel Brick. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode will help you get better at thinking during races, workouts, and long runs. I'm speaking with Dr. Noel Brick, a lecturer and researcher in sport and exercise psychology on attentional focus, associating versus disassociating with how you feel during a race, his thoughts on GPS watches, and more. If you're new to the Strength Running Podcast, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to help elevate your thinking about the sport. I want to help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos on effective strategies to stay healthy, my favorite mantras, training principles that never go out of style, and more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world improve with our award-winning blog, our free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and improving your mindset, plus all of Strength Running's training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. You can learn more about those at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, one of my favorite companies that is investing heavily in the running community. They test your blood for dozens of biomarkers so you know if there are any red flags with your physiology that might be holding back your running. Then they give you science-backed recommendations to improve anything that might be outside of your personal optimal range. Get 25% off any of their blood tests with code STRENGTHRUNNING at insidetracker.com slash Strength running. Now, the code is strength running with no space, and all those details can be seen at insidetracker.com slash strength running. We're also supported by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes AG1. I love this stuff. It's the most popular greens mix available with 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, antioxidants, and adaptogens. To make taking control of your health even easier, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Jason, and you can choose from a single purchase, or you can get a monthly drop to make this part of your ongoing nutrition plan. I try to have one serving every day of AG1 to help me cover my bases and for a nice boost of midday energy. See all the details at athleticgreens.com slash Jason. Okay, my guest today is Noel Brick. You might be aware of Dr. Brick. He's the researcher who discovered that smiling can reduce perceptions of effort while running, a strategy used by marathon world record holder Elliot Kipchoge. He teaches and conducts research at Ulster University and is a chartered psychologist with the British Psychological Society. His research focuses primarily on the psychology of endurance performance, so he's a great candidate for this podcast. Noel has also finished more than 30 marathons and ultramarathons. 
We're exploring the topic of focus today, specifically what to focus on when you're running hard. We'll discuss attentional focus, association versus disassociation, smiling during races, the impact of GPS data on your psychology, and the energy cost of thinking. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Noel Brick. Thanks for being here, Noel. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. And thanks for having me on, Jason. So your research has touched on so many areas within sports psychology, but today I want to discuss focus and how runners can use the latest research to improve their performances. And I think this is a really exciting area of study because we very frequently talk about our training leading to successful races. We talk about an appropriate pacing strategy. But we don't often talk about what we think about while we're racing, which your research shows has an enormous impact on our performance. So let's start with that. In in particular, one particular area of your research, which is attentional focus. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so um, I guess broadly speaking, it's really what we think about, um, really what we think about when we're running. Um, so it kind of covers a, a broad range of things. So, you know, a runner might focus on generally how they're feeling or their breathing or, you know, if they've got a lot of fatigue in their legs or something like that. So so um, we can focus on those things. We call that internal sensory monitoring. Um, or we might, we might focus on things around us, like we other runners in a race or the profile of the race route. Um, if you're doing something like, I don't know, um, New York Marathon, you might be thinking about the next bridge coming up or something like that. So um, so, so we can focus on things around us. Um, a lot of runners um, use very specific strategies. So um, they might focus on optimizing their technique, uh, keeping relaxed, or even those kind of thoughts, those things that we say to ourselves, um, you know, about, you know, I've got two miles to go and feeling good, or, or it might be negative things, which we'll maybe discuss a little bit uh, more later as well. Um, so th- those, I guess, are kind of very, some of those are very strategic kind of things. Um, but as well as that, we can obviously focus on things totally irrelevant and not related to, to the run. So uh, we might think about what we're having for dinner that evening. Um, we might be having a conversation with a running buddy. Um, so that, that sort of comes into as well, those kind of distractive thoughts. Um, and my research and what I'm really interested in is um, how those things, how will those thoughts affect performance? So how fast or slow we go, um, how it influences how good or bad we feel or how easy or hard the run feels, um, but also kind of broader things as well. So, you know, how enjoyable a run is. Um, so can those strategies influence um, that kind of uh, mood state or, or effective state that we experience during a run, like enjoyment or even boredom and things like that? So, so yeah, so, so a lot of things, a lot of areas, and I guess a lot of impact in terms of both performance and really kind of recreational running enjoyment as well. Now, is there a significant difference between how runners think in a race situation, depending upon their level of competitiveness? So for example, does someone who's only been running for a year, does that person typically think differently in a race situation than a more competitive runner who might have a decade of racing experience? Yeah, it's a really nice question. It's actually something we've we've done um, quite a bit of research on. Um, so um, one of the areas I've, I've looked at is how this compares across uh, beginner recreational runners. So uh, recently I did a study where we 
did some interviews with um, a group of runners who really in the past year has started a kind of we call it couch to 5k program so really going from doing zero running activity to to completing a 5k um so, and we we asked uh, them sort of questions about what they think about what they focus on um, and how that evolved over that year from from the very beginning to um to the time of the interview um, about two years before that, we did the very same sort of study, but with elite runners. So these were runners who had competed at Olympics, uh, World Championships sort of level. Uh, and part of the sort of the, the study with recreational runners was to see how those two things compared, how how the thoughts and the strategies that uh, elite runners used compare with with absolute beginners, and are there things we can learn from those elites that that help uh, running for beginners? So some of, some of the main things that came out with from that was that um, I guess. And we can all relate to this, um, Jason, from, from our own running experiences that um, when we first start to run, probably one of the main things that a beginner has to deal with is those physical sensations like my body feels terrible. I I can't control my breathing. This is horrendous. How do I get through this? Um, and I, th- I think that's one of the big challenges uh, at the start. Um, but what we found with, with uh, our beginner runners was that over time, the strategies and what they focused on and what they thought about evolved. Um, so they maybe developed some basic strategies like, um, so, you know, if, if you're going for a, a 10 minute run, breaking it down into little chunks. Okay, I'll, I'll get through the first few minutes and, and see how I feel. Um, and really importantly as well, and you mentioned it at the very start there as well, is, is simply learning how to pace. Um, so learning, you know, what pace will allow you to keep going for 10 minutes or 20 minutes um, without stopping or, or quitting before you get to the end. And that, that's a huge skill um, that the beginners have to, to learn. Um, we also found some of the strategies they used then um, differed in terms of, I guess, the, the traditional view of a beginner runners is that we uh, try to distract ourselves from those sensations that we might be feeling. And that could be maybe using music, which can be extremely useful. Um, maybe buddying up and, and having a conversation with a, with a running partner. Um, and I guess those would be sort of distractive techniques to kind of take your mind off those physical sensations that you might be experiencing. Um, for our elite runners, it was very, very different. So with the elite runners, we found they were really strategic in terms of their, their thoughts. So um, a lot of runners would plan what they were going to think. So maybe during a race, they would have specific uh, thoughts to cope with um, parts of that race or you know so if they knew there was a really steep hill how, how am I going to get up that hill what am I going to say to myself um, dealing with other competitors you know how how am I going to react if my p- competitor gets ahead of me or, or I get ahead of them um, so we found they planned those things um, they use very specific strategies like so for example keeping relaxed we know a relaxed runner is a more efficient runner so uh, these elite runners use some relaxation techniques to, to help them run in, in a more relaxed state. Um, their self-talk, so what they said to themselves was generally very positive um, and very motivational. Um, so a beginner runner might experience thoughts like, I can't do this, I can't keep going. Um, whereas an experienced, more experienced runner maybe has a way of coping with those kind of thoughts. We all, we all experience those thoughts, but it's how we cope with them and what we say to ourselves to maintain our pace and to keep going. Um, and I guess one other thing that sort of stood out that I found was quite interesting as well was I mentioned about learning how to pace for, for beginners. Um, what we found with the elite runners is they'd really dialed in on what pace felt like. So so an elite runner really could maybe sort of turn out six minute miles or five minute miles or whatever it was. But rather than maybe kind of continually looking at a watch or, or sort of, you know, having 
um, somebody tell them what they're pacing. It was really dialed into how that felt. Um, and so they could sort of gauge a pace very, very accurately based on, on how it feels. And that, that takes time uh, to learn, but it's an extremely useful um, strategy to pace appropriately um, and rather than kind of relying on, on other ways of doing that, like a GPS device or whatever. This seems very much to me like uh, an issue of either associating with race fatigue and those sensations versus disassociating with those same race sensations. Can you explain how attentional focus and more competitive runners, uh, how, how does that go beyond this simpler idea of either associating or disassociating with race fatigue? Yeah, so so um, so my line of research really is, um, I guess, building on that sort of early concept and, and of association and dissociation. So, so these terms kind of come from um, some research that was done in the late 1970s on uh, comparisons between, similar to what I just spoke about, comparisons between experienced and elite runners uh, and uh, relatively inexperienced or beginner runners. And, and, and the idea coming from that early research is that or was that uh, elite runners tended to associate. So um, the guys who originally did that study in the 1970s um, suggested that that was, you know, focusing on how you felt, so body sensations and then adjusting your pace, relaxing, things like that. So so broadly, that kind of term, the association term was used to describe those thoughts. And dissociation then was pretty much anything you did to take your mind off that. So that's really those distraction techniques like conversing or daydreaming and, and things like that that I mentioned earlier. Where my work hopefully kind of builds on that a little bit is kind of, I guess, you know, if, if we sort of recommend or we sort of make a broad suggestion like elite runners associate and, and it can be useful to associate it, it's what we mean by that that becomes a bit confusing. Um, so does that mean I purely just think about my breathing and, and how I'm feeling? Um, and, and we know from our research that that actually can be counterproductive, that that can make sometimes a run feel harder than it otherwise would. So we kind of maybe break that association into different categories like, yes, a little bit of body monitoring, um, but also tuning into those things around you, like your competitors, like the race route, and also then using those strategies like relaxing, like learning your pace and, and what that feels like. Um, so so that, that's kind of where my research goes, is, is sort of giving a little bit of meat to the, the bones, I guess, of association and dissociation. Uh, and for two reasons. One, for researchers like me, it helps me know a little bit more about how all those various thoughts impact on performance. But more importantly, I think for practical advice we give, we can give uh, more firm advice about what that means and, and what can be helpful to your performance and actually what can be counterproductive. Yeah, and I can't wait to dive into some of the more practical applications of your research so that runners have really practical, actionable things that they can take away from this conversation to plug into their training and their racing to hopefully get to another level of performance. There was one thing that you said earlier that I wanted to touch on quickly, which was uh, racing with a GPS watch. And I think when we're talking about the things that a runner talks to himself or herself about in their head, you know, that's like internal feedback that you're giving yourself. But of course, there's a lot of external feedback that you're experiencing in a race. There's things like, um, you know, visual cues and auditory cues, whether you have a, a GPS watch beeping at you every mile or showing you your current pace, you know, updated every five seconds. Is that 
external feedback valuable in a race situation? I'm just trying to get a, a gauge on your thoughts on the effectiveness of racing with uh, a GPS-enabled watch. Yeah, it's it's a really, really interesting area. Um, I, I in, in my kind of view, and I think backed up with some research on this as well, as well as maybe sort of practical personal experience, um, I think there's there's two ways. There's good points and there's bad points about uh, GPS devices. Um, I think kind of going back to, to what I had mentioned earlier, I think some really, really useful applications um, and, and positive things about GPS devices are, I guess, for beginner runners, learning, learning that pace, learning what it feels like. Um, and it can be that sort of external cue can be really helpful to dial in um, your pace with with actually your internal kind of sensations in your internal cues. So, so for example, if I'm going for a run and my GPS is telling me, okay, this is eight minute mile pace. Okay. So what does that feel like? Is that easy for me? Is that somewhat hard for me? Um, what, what is my breathing like? What is my cadence like at this um, pace? So, so it helps, it can be useful as a learning tool um, in that way. I kind of, I guess, kind of personal, I kind of play a little game with myself sometimes um, when I'm running. So uh, yeah, I run, so I run with a GPS device. So, um, but without looking at it, I might cover a mile and I sort of play a little game. Okay, what, what do I think my pace is? This feels maybe a little bit harder than 7.30s, but maybe not as hard as seven minute mile pace. So so I kind of feel, okay, I think this is about 7.12s. And then when the mile beeps, I kind of have a look and see how close it was. And that can be really helpful just to to kind of dial in and say what that pace actually feels like. Um, I think in addition, a really good point then is using them when maybe at the end of a training run or or whatever to kind of see okay how, how did that run feel overall and how was my pace during that run how did i handle that hill was i you know sort of faster did i go a bit too fast so kind of using your pay your gps device to to review your run and kind of learn a little bit about how you handle various aspects of that run like like a hill or whatever so i think those are some of the positives um i think counter to that, to that there are some some potential negatives as well and kind of one of those i think is where we uh, i mean we all do it sometimes but where we i guess constantly pace watch and, and constantly look at what sort of information our our, our watch or our gps device is telling us um, and that can lead to a bit of anxiety because i mean if, if we're sort of using our gps device and it's telling us we're we're five seconds off where we want it to be in terms of pace or whatever then, okay, what, what impact does that, that have? And often that means we then try to chase it. So we try to to chase the time that might not necessarily be the best thing on that day. So it might mean you go a little bit too fast than you're capable of, of uh, on that day. And, and linked with that, that sort of anxiety it creates is not necessarily the best thing for running. So when we feel anxious, we get tense. Uh, and so maybe our running action gets a little less smooth. Uh, our muscles become more tense, which means we use a little bit more energy to run. So I think in that way it can become a bit of a negative if we become too reliant and too dependent on them, as well as the fact that we don't really dial in to how we feel at that pace. We sort of use this device to give us that information. So, so that learning, potential learning tool is lost. Um, my kind of experience as well is that sometimes um, we can become a little bit too obsessed with what the watch is telling us. And so um, I found, uh, and this is sort of going back to about maybe uh, a year ago, um, I sort of got to a stage where I was too obsessed, even in my runs that were supposed to be easy paced runs. Um, I was obsessed with running even those at a certain time. Uh, and so I kind of found my running became really externally regulated. I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. It was all about 
hitting a time, hitting a target. So, so I actually went through from about September last year to about May of this year um, without wearing a watch on any of my runs. And really the point was for me to start enjoying it again, not to worry too much about what pace I was going at, um, and also to dial into what my body was telling me and, and what I was feeling. Um, and for me, it worked quite well. It, it, a, a little bit of time away from it just kind of um, got me back into my running in a more positive way again without being controlled by the watch to a certain extent. So yeah, good, good, good and bad points. Right. And it's funny you say that because I had exactly the same experience. You know, when I first started running as a kid, there were no GPS watches. And so now as an adult, I finally got a fancy GPS watch. And about a year and a half ago, I actually downgraded my watch to a very simple Timex where I can time my runs. I know how long I was out there for, but I don't have any of the fancy data or metrics that come with a GPS watch because just like you, I was really struggling with trying to run easy or recovery runs at a certain pace. And for me, it just ended up being too stressful and I was, you know, dealing with all this anxiety around my average pace and whether or not a run had a negative split. And I can only imagine that, you know, that has a certain amount of stress during an easy run. But in a race situation where you want to use as little uh, energy as possible and try to be as economical as possible, all the mental gymnastics that you're doing to evaluate those metrics in real time in a race situation, to me, that seems like it's, you know, using uh, way more energy than you should be using. Does your research show that overusing the brain, for lack of a better phrase, almost like overusing a muscle or running too fast at the beginning of a race, does that waste enough total energy that it actually impacts your race performance? Um, I, I think, you know, it's really interesting sort of points that you make. Um, and, and just as another sort of anecdote, which ties into this as well. I mean, it sort of reminds me of when I did a, a race in Europe last two years ago, um, where I was actually, so I'm used to running in miles, minute per mile, but the, the race was in kilometers. So I spent most of my race trying to do those calculations from minute per mile pace and, and converting those to kilometers. And mentally, I, I felt so fatigued halfway through that race from constantly doing these calculations it was it was a ridiculous thing to do um and i think that's kind of part of the point of this that's you know it's not so much i guess that um okay so some of these thoughts can have negative effects but it, it's when we're kind of running how, how can we sort of focus our attention to to make sure that a we're optimizing our, our pace um, and so if, if pace is our main goal and our main target is constantly looking at a watch going to distract you from those kind of thoughts that we know can be helpful. So, for example, keeping relaxed, uh, making sure, especially as you start to get fatigued during a, a marathon or a half marathon, um, trying to optimize your, your technique. So focusing on those cues that are going to help you run maybe a little bit more efficiently, like keeping your hips high or, or you know, whatever cues um, people might have. Um, a study we did in, in 2016, we sort of um, compared, and I, I guess the, the comparison here before I explain the study is how it maybe uh, influences our thoughts when we run with a pacemaker, if we've got somebody like in, in a marathon where you've got three, three thirty, four hour pacemakers. Um, can that be a useful strategy to, to sort of help in some way take the focus off things like, OK, am I still on pace? Do I have to check my watch? Um, so in, in this particular study, we basically had athletes one in three conditions and two of those conditions were either one of them was a self-paced. So 
on a treadmill, they control the pace, and we ask them to do a 3K time trial as fast as possible. So, so that was the, the sort of cue. Uh, but in the next one, we um, when they came into the lab, um, I told them that I was going to be controlling the pace. Um, but what we actually did without telling this to the athletes and they weren't aware is that I repeated back the exact same pacing strategy to them as they had uh, implemented in their own self-control pace trial. Um, and one thing that we, we sort of found from that was that when uh, people reacted, did react differently, but on the whole, um, when I was controlling a pace, people could switch off to a certain extent. So they didn't have to think about, you know, should I go faster? Should I go slower? That that thought process was taken away. I was controlling the pace. So what do you think about then? And for a lot of the runners, it was, okay, I don't have to worry about pace. I'm just going to stay relaxed. I'm going to make sure I run efficiently. And so those very simple thoughts, um, one thing that we found was heart rate was, um, uh, I think it was about 2% lower or so, about two, three beats per minute lower in the condition where I was controlling the pace. And one possible reason for that is um, because athletes were thinking more about staying relaxed, uh, running efficiently, that may be the reason why their heart rate was a little bit lower. So so the implication for that for runners is that, okay, if you have a goal to run three hours, 3.30, four hours, whatever it is in a marathon, that actually running with a pacemaker can be a useful strategy to help you Think about just those things that's going to help you run a little bit more efficiently and not concern yourself too much about your pacing, et cetera, and all that kind of thing. Um, I guess the other thing then that really helps there, going back to what we said earlier, was dialing in how it feels. You know, if you know how it feels, you've pretty much got that internal GPS that is telling you I'm on pace, I'm on target. Uh, and then maybe use the GPS device to occasionally check. Yeah, I'm still on target. I'm still where I want to be. All's good. Um, and hopefully, you know, if, if you've got... It's probably a whole other conversation, I guess. But if you've got um, goals that are appropriate in terms of where your ability is and, and realistic in terms of what you can achieve in that race, um, then gauging it in terms of how it feels can be a very, very effective strategy rather than constantly relying on, on a GPS device. It sounds like from your research that the more you have to think about in a race situation, then the less economical you might be. Is there any relationship between your research and the the concept of getting in flow or in the zone where, you know, you're not really actively thinking about what you're doing, but you're just executing and you're really just in the zone uh, in flow? Yeah, I think um, so. It, it's it's something that came out in our, our research with um, with the elite runners that the, of course there, there's times where they would describe it. Um, I think one of our interviews, one of the elite runners described it as just a stage where you don't have to think, and and uh, and maybe that's that's kind of closer to what we would sort of traditionally consider as, as like a flow state where it's 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 happening rather than we're trying to make it happen by using all these other kind of thoughts. Um, I guess in terms of how that influences things like maybe running efficiency or whatever, we know that that's usually a more enjoyable state. We know that that's usually associated with with higher level of performance. Um, but maybe digging into things like how that influences our running efficiency or whatever, I'm not so sure. Apart from some of the work that, we, that has been done on specific thoughts like how relaxing can influence our, our running economy, etc., there's not so much done in terms of flow states. And the reason that it is, is, is it's really hard to artificially induce a flow state in a lab and then test it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great point that you make. Sometimes thinking less um, or, or as well being really strategic in terms of our thoughts um, can result in, in, a, in a better performance. Now, we've talked a lot about 
some things that are not so great to focus on, particularly in a race. If you're always checking in with your body and worrying about how this feels and your breathing, then, you know, that's more of a beginner oriented strategy. But what about you know, the the helpful things to focus on when you're in a race situation, or even when you're in the middle of a challenging workout, and you know, the things are starting to go very hard. What is an optimal strategy for what to focus on when you're in a race or running a hard workout? Yeah, so I think um, really begins, I suppose, um, and really practical application, our start point is becoming aware of what actually you do uh, think about or what you do even say to yourself you know what is the kind of narrative what what kind of stories do you tell yourself in a really hard workout or, or when you start to get fatigued um and so we'll take one strategy where some really nice work has been done on this so um typically what, what a lot of runners and what a lot of us will, will start to feel and, and say to ourselves at that point is this is hard i'm not sure i can finish this workout or um, even in marathon, sometimes we, we disengage from our goals. So we might start off with a you know a goal to run a certain time, but then it hits that really hard point and that little voice in our head starts to go, you know, it, it's it's okay to slow down a little bit, or you know, it's okay to go a little bit slower. And 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 in a way that's a protective thing because it's really hard, it's really effortful, and, and that's not necessarily um, I guess uh, um in terms of evolution, this isn't really a place where we want to be. So a really nice strategy with a lot of good research um, is how we use our self-talk and uh, specifically motivational self-talk to improve performance. So when I start to experience those thoughts, how do I respond? Do I slow down or do I counter that by saying, no, I've, 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 I can do this. I've, I've done this in training. I've, I've done, I've completed a hard workout like this before. Um, I can do this. So th- those, that's our motivational self-talk. Um, and if you think about it, I mean, if, if one of those thoughts might be, I can't keep going at that pace. Um, so you might break it down and say, okay, let's try to keep going for one minute more. And if you can keep going for one minute more, you've already proven that that voice is, is lying. You know, you've achieved what it said you couldn't. So it's kind of maybe using strategies. We, we call that strategy chunking, where you focus on rather than thinking, gosh, I still have another six months to go here. Um, break it down, chunk it down, get to the next lamppost, get to the next bridge get to the next mile mark or whatever it is um, and then see how you feel there start again if I if I have completed that mile okay maybe I can do another one so so self-talk is is a really useful strategy uh, and motivational self-talk is a really useful strategy um, to help improve performance and there was a nice study done on this a few years ago where actually over the course of two weeks um in a cycling task, people improve their performance by 18% using a motivational self-talk intervention. And it really was very simple things like that, like um, keep going. I can do this. Um, you know, give it all you have. Whatever it might be, motivational statements are different for different people. And one practical application is, is you know, learn what works for you. Um, but that evidence shows us that it can uh, really have a massive influence on performance. People were going at about 80% of their max for as long as they could. And, and those people in the motivational self-talk condition went for 18% longer. Um, so that's one strategy. Um, one that I've done some research on recently as well is, is how relaxation can be uh, useful. So one thing I'm quite interested in is how these thoughts influence how efficient we are, how economical that we are. Um, and again, these are skills that take time t- to learn. And one of those is, is how to relax when we are really suffering and when we are at that point where maybe we don't want to keep going, we don't think we can keep going. And naturally, we tend to, to sort of tense up at that point. So 
um, simple relaxation cues like like keeping your your hands relaxed, keeping your upper body relaxed, um, those can help to make us more efficient and, and again can help us deal with that sort of point where uh, we're not sure that we can keep going. It's funny that you mention motivational self-talk and the stories that we tell ourselves and how that can really make a big impact on your performance. Because I remember back to the Philadelphia Marathon when I ran my my personal best in that that distance, and I basically lied to myself the entire race, <laughs> telling myself that oh I'm I'm running very easy right now, this is not hard, I'm going to make it to the finish, feeling great, and I had all of these kind of inner monologues with myself, telling myself that you know I was very relaxed and I felt good, even when I didn't really feel that way, particularly you know, after about mile 20 or 21, you know, very cliche part of the marathon when things really start to become challenging. But that story that I told myself, I think in hindsight was one of the reasons why I had such a great race is that I just convinced myself that I was going to have a good race and it panned out that way. Yeah, it, again, those thoughts are huge and, and it kind of works in reverse as well. There's some days where we go out um uh, even on a training run, and maybe we've had a tough day at work, maybe we're just not in, in a good mood. And those negative thoughts, you go out sometimes, now sometimes you can go out and have a great run, but sometimes actually those negative thoughts roll into your run and you can just sometimes have a, a really sort of bad workout. Um, another strategy, and again, similar maybe sort of experience to, to what you had, um, so I do a lot of, as well as marathons, I do a lot of uh, ultra distance events. Um, and there was one I did a few years ago, it was a 52 mile uh, race. Now, the night before race, there was a really horrendous uh, snowstorm. So part of, part of the route um, became impassable. So they sort of changed the route slightly. So it became uh, 13 miles out and back and then repeat that again. And, and weirdly, it was one of the it was a tough race, but it was mentally one of the easiest races I did because I was now able to break it down into four 13-mile runs. It didn't become this big monster of a 52-mile run anymore. Uh, and so it just became a 30-mile run. I get a break, 30-mile back. Okay, that was not so bad. And then and then repeat. And so being able to, to break it down like that, so to chunk it down, influenced my thoughts. So I then became a little bit more positive about the race. I was only thinking of getting, you know, to the next 13-mile kind of station. Um and those thoughts then had a positive influence on, on my race. Um, so, so yeah, uh, completely agree. Um, those strategies, uh, and as you mentioned, similar to your self-talk story, um, can have a huge influence on, on how we ultimately perform and, and how good or bad we feel, how, how much we enjoy the, the race as well. You know, it's funny you use that that example because I had exactly the same thing happen to me except with a marathon where it was a double out and back course. It was 6.55 miles out and then you would turn around, come back and then just do the same thing over again. And while it was boring and I would have rather you know, kind of wanted to run a more exciting course, the ability to break down a marathon into about six and a half mile chunks was really great mentally because when you're in marathon shape and you're on the starting line of a marathon, six and a half miles is a very manageable distance for someone who is fit enough to run a marathon. And for me, I found that to be a really helpful way to focus on a much smaller piece of the race at a time rather than 
oh my God, thinking about 26.2 miles and how that is, you know, such a, a challenging distance to overcome. So yeah, that the chunking strategy can be really helpful, whether that's, you know, only focusing on the interval that you're on during a, a tough workout or a piece of the race that you might be running while you're in the race. Mm. Um, I think going back to what you said earlier as well, that sort of strategy of lying to yourself for, for a training run or, uh, and again, I do it repeatedly. I mean, when I'm doing, when I, okay, so I sort of know that I'm going to be doing maybe sort of 10, 12, 16 intervals or whatever it is, but I don't tell myself that. I, I tell myself, okay, you know what, I think I'll just do 10 today. And so I sort of break it down. That That's manageable. But I know when I get to 10, I'm going to do 12. And when I get to 12, I'm going to do 16. Um, but that simple strategy of, of kind of breaking it down just makes that workout a little bit uh, more manageable. And there's not a lot of great research on this in terms of running. Um, but in the broader kind of psychology literature, that sort of chunking strategy um, can influence what we call self-efficacy. And, and self-efficacy is that belief that you can achieve a task or in this case, complete a, a run of, of that type. Um, so if we believe that we're able to do um, something that starts out being more manageable, because effectively we're almost telling ourselves that lie, um, then that belief influences our thoughts and that those thoughts influence um, how we actually act and and and, and how we um, engage with that task. So what we say to ourselves. Um, and of course, yeah, I mean, it's so much more manageable starting at the start line of, of a marathon and thinking, OK, I'm only thinking about the next six and a half miles here um, rather than, you know, the next 26.2, which which can be daunting for anybody. This really reminds me of uh, when Billy Mills won the Olympic 10K. He was a virtual unknown. I believe he ran a 5K PR through the 5K in the middle of the 10K and then went on to run a PR by over a minute. And his mantra was believe. And he just kept saying that over and over in his head during that race. Uh, and I think that's a, a interesting kind of side note to to that strategy. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit, Noel, uh, and talk about smiling. Your research has shown that smiling actually reduces someone's perception of effort. And uh, you published a study in the journal Psychology of Sport and Exercise about just this. Can you tell us about what you found? Yeah, so um, this was a study we did a couple of years ago. Um, again, maybe just very, very briefly, just to give some background to it. So kind of the inspiration for this study came from um, literally kind of my obsession with watching sort of athletes and, and how they react um, and how they cope with events. And there's a lot of athletes, um, a couple of sort of really famous example. One is Chrissy Wellington, Wellington who's a, a British triathlete, um, who, who pretty much smiled right throughout her event. And um, a more recent one who sort of, our study predated slightly, but um, Elliot Kipchoge um, tends to use smiling towards the the, the later stages of, of marathons. He did it during the sub two um, and not this year. I didn't observe this year, but I think the previous year um, in Berlin, again, when it was really competitive towards the end, um, every 30 seconds or, or for 30 seconds, every mile or so, he seemed to just kind of break into this broad smile over the last maybe sort of six miles, you know, or so of, of the marathon. So um, it's a strategy that, that's used by athletes. And, and I was kind of interested, again, going back to what I said earlier, I was interested, first of all, in relaxation and, and how that influences performance. But the idea about smiling came from um, those observations and also some research that's been done on how our facial expression kind of matches how we feel. So 
if we're doing something really effortful, so if, if we're really concentrating on something, we, there's a, a facial expression we would associate with that. If we're doing a really hard math problem, um, our facial expression shows that we're really thinking and, and focusing really, really um, effortfully, I guess, on, on that. And it's the same for runners. We know when a runner is really pushing at their hardest purely by looking at their facial expression. So I was interested to know if, if changing that facial expression had an impact on running economy. So in the study, we had 24 runners come to our lab and each runner completed uh, in the same session, completed four six minute runs with about a two minute rest in between each run. So either with their normal thoughts, um, smiling for the, the six minutes, um, we asked them to, in the third condition, to um, adopt what they would consider their face of effort. Um, so that really effortful expression and that they would engage maybe at the end of a really hard race. Um, or the final one was we asked them to, so it's a common coaching cue, um, we asked them to kind of relax their hands and upper body. And, and the cue we used for that one was to imagine they were holding a potato chip um, between their thumb and index finger uh, and to hold it strong enough um, without without breaking. So it kind of helps you to relax your hands while you run. Um, and what we found in that study was that when runners were smiling, that they're uh, running an economy. So how much energy they were using um, during a run that was around about their marathon pace um, uh, was about 2% lower um, than both the uh, frowning condition, so that grimacing condition, uh, and also the control condition. And so what, what we kind of thought was going on there was that, um, uh, and by the way, there's, there's maybe some kind of, I guess, um, limitations to this, which I think are important to, to highlight as well, or practical applications to this as well. But what we thought that was going on there was that when people were smiling, um, that that can be uh, in the same way that, you know, when we're relaxed, when we're happy, when we're enjoying something relaxed, adopting that facial expression can help us experience those emotional states as well. So um, when people were smiling, what we think was going on was that they were maybe more relaxed. Uh, more relaxed means that your muscles are, are less tense, especially in your upper body, uh, and, a, and a less tense muscle uses less energy. So that may explain what was going on in terms of, of the running economy. Um, lots of limitations. I mean, so probably the most important thing is, is that doesn't mean that by using smiling that you're going to run 2% faster. It's, it's, it's in terms of actual performance, it's like a lot, lot less than that. But I guess this study was kind of a first study where we really want to see um, are, are these kind of useful strategies that can help um, runners become a little bit more efficient? And as, as you mentioned at the start there, um, during the smiling condition, uh, they also reported that it felt easier than it did when they were grimacing or, or frowning. Um, and we know that perception of effort is linked with performance as well. So um, if, if we're using a strategy that helps to make a run feel easier, um, then we're likely to run a little bit faster uh, and we're also likely to, to enjoy it more. So can smiling as a very, very simple strategy um, help in those areas as well, help uh, performance, but more so for me, I think help enjoyments and, and those positive uh, kind of emotional states um, as well. So, yeah, I mean, the, the other limitations is that this was a lab study. And, and one thing that we want to do with this next year is, is kind of extend this study and kind of look at, Okay, do these strategies actually have an influence on running performance? So are we likely to see a different performance in terms of time over 3K, for example, um, when somebody's smiling versus grimacing? Um, can these relaxation techniques actually translate into a faster running performance as well? R right now, we don't know. Um, those studies haven't been done, and, and that's kind of where we want to go with this.
it sounds like, you know, a 2% improvement is, is fairly significant. And I know that, of course, not every runner is going to experience this. Uh, we can't all expect exactly 2%. But can you put that number in perspective for us? What, what would that mean for, say, a half marathon or running about two hours or, you know, a, a three-hour marathon? Or what does 2% mean? Okay, so so yeah, so um, the main thing I think, first of all, is that a 2% improvement in a running economy doesn't really translate into a 2% improvement in, in performance. Um, so a 2% improvement in performance would be, I'm just kind of doing the maths in my head here. So for, for a, a three-hour marathon, we're probably talking somewhere in the region of about sort of, you know, three minutes or so ballpark. Somebody will do the maths on that and find I'm totally wrong. But <laughs> uh, somewhere there, thereabouts, I, I think off the top of my head. However, if, if we sort of use the, um, so a lot of conversation really about the the Nike um, sort of 4%, then the Vaporfly sort of issue and um, a different mechanism to, to, to what we suggest for our study but it was suggested that that improves running economy um, by about four percent and the performance translation for that um, equates to about one point something percent 1.2 percent 1.3 percent it's kind of debated you know how much of an actual performance improvement that might be associated with Um, but that gives maybe a gauge for what an improvement in running economy equates to in terms of improvement in in actual performance Um, so i think realistically if we're purely just looking at those relaxation studies and how much it improves running economy, you're not going to get massive improvements. But for me, it's it's a strategy that, like in the way that Elliot Kipchoge seems to use it, is when you're really suffering, when it's getting really, really tough, um, and that strategy to help you relax at that time, to cope with that effort, um, that for me is where it's most useful. And that for me, I think, is, is probably the better practical application. Um, going back to something we spoke about at the very, very top about differences between beginner runners and recreational runners and, and elite runners. Um, elite runners are very strategic. So the, if we talk about self-talk, they don't use self-talk all the time because quite simply, they don't need to be constantly saying positive things to themselves. But when they do need to, it's a useful strategy to have. And I think relaxation and smiling is, is very much the same, that if you find you're really struggling, really suffering, feeling horrendous and want to give up, um, that can be potentially one of those strategies that might help break that sort of cycle of negative thoughts, um, help you to cope in that time. Um, that for me is, 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 is probably, I think, the more important application. Is there any potential of overusing any of these strategies that we've talked about, whether it is smiling when, you know, you're in a race or telling yourself to relax or, you know, focusing on, you know, different things, uh, you know, really associating with your experience? Can you overdo it and, and almost reduce the effectiveness of these strategies if you're doing them every day? I th- I th- to a certain extent, I, th- I mean... Um, I think there are good um, techniques that, that that will help runners. In, so running with good form and, and running in a relaxed state, um, I think that's something you want to do. It's it's, it's going to help your performance. Um, and I don't think that gets old. You know, I think running relaxed, however you do it and whatever works for you. Um, but I think with some strategies, yes, because um, uh, in, in terms of, of this area of attention, folks, we call this conditional knowledge. So it's it's knowing when to use strategies and knowing in what conditions that they will work best for you. Um, and so if I was to think about going back to most motivational self-talk, um, the kind of things that I might say to myself two years ago 
maybe aren't really that motivational for me anymore. So I think one thing that we also do is that we we sort of we, we review those, we see what works, and we maybe sort of try different things. Um, smiling is the same. We we had people um, run for six minutes in the smiling condition, and some people reported actually that their face was getting quite painful after six minutes trying to hold that expression. <laughs> so, so you know, if if you try smiling your way through a marathon, that could get pretty painful after a while. Um, so, so I think it, it's kind of for me, it's a case of having this range of strategies. I kind of describe it in a couple of ways, but one way I describe it is having a backpack and you kind of take out these tools, you take out your kit when you need it. Um, and it's the same with these strategies that you've got this backpack of strategies that you carry with you. And it's like, OK, this is the tool I need now. Um, I remember, again, anecdotally, but I remember being in some marathons where it's almost like, I'm sort of going through my list of strategies when I'm suffering and it's like, no, this won't work. This won't work. Okay, that's the one I'm going to use. This this is helping me now. And so it's having a range of strategies that you can call upon in that sort of conditional context, in that situation where you need it. You've you've got a range of strategies and this is the one that's working for you now. And in another context, it might not work. Um, and that's part of, I guess, the experience of running uh, and and practicing these various thoughts and learning about what works best for you and that changes that changes over time like as i say what what is motivating you today may not motivate you in six months time um so so it evolves as well right it sounds like you know these are all different tools that runners can have in their toolbox to pull out depending upon what they need for the given job if you're following the analogy here um now Part of this is really encouraging for me as a coach when I think about it, and part of it is discouraging. And let me explain that. Um, you know, you've mentioned that a lot of these skills are learned over time, and you don't necessarily have to, you know, go buy a sports psychology course or go take a class somewhere to really understand these concepts because, you know, you will learn them gradually over time as you become more and more experienced. So I can kind of, you know, shake my hands off and say, hey, my work here is done. But at the same time, you know, I really want to give runners every advantage and I want them to use the latest research to better improve their performances. Is this an area where you think runners can learn and apply that to their running to get better? Or are these things innate skills that are only developed over time with experience? No, these are absolutely something that we we can learn. Um, um, A lot of the sort of work that we're doing at the minute, I think it's a really great point that you make. um, Because what a lot of recent work um, has shown from from some researchers who, who work in this area is that actually most runners do not have access to to a psychologist first of all um, and, and most runners maybe even don't have access to a coach so um, how can we kind of teach people these strategies and, and how can we we learn these and, and what we found in, in our recent kind of study with beginner runners is that uh, well one thing coaches and other running more experienced running partners um, are a very useful source of, of some of these cues and some of these um, sort of psychological strategies um, but the other thing we're trying to do, and when I say we, I'm, I'm talking about a research group that I'm, I'm working with, um, is how can we deliver this information um, to to serve people in terms of, you know, people who don't have access to a psychologist. So uh, we started developing a lot of um, what we call brief contact kind of um, 
sometimes delivered through video, sometimes delivered online, psychological interventions. And for me, smiling would be one like that. Um, you don't necessarily need to teach somebody how to smile. Um, but also at the same time, it's not a strategy that most people would maybe think about using. So um, it's kind of teaching people, you know, this can be something that can be effective. That's kind of why we do the research. Um, and I would always follow that up then with try it out, you know, see if it works for you, um, see when it works for you and when it doesn't work for you. Um, same same with self-talk. Um, I mean, it can, we can often sort of think we're almost a victim to those kind of um, that narrative, that story that we tell ourselves that I can't do this or this is really hard. I need to stop. Um, but actually with practice, um, challenging those thoughts and, and doing those simple things in your training that I mentioned earlier, like go for that extra minute and, and, and prove that that sort of voice that was telling you you can't go any further was actually lying and that you could go even for that one minute further. So that builds up kind of evidence. Um, and then also when we do that, we then sort of learn um, and these are teachable skills again. OK, what can I say? What, how can I counter that sort of voice? So what sort of thoughts can I say to myself? Um, so, so both ways, we do learn some of these good experience, but I think these are very teachable. Um, and for me, it's how we deliver that as for me, as, as kind of a psychologist who researches and works in this area. Um, but for you as a coach as well, it's okay. What can I tell my athletes and, and what sort of strategies can I teach them to cope? And, and part of that is becoming aware, first of all. So what happens during performance and then, okay, what, what can we then teach and what can we learn to, to put in place of that? Like chunking that we mentioned, like self-talk or, or like those relaxation uh, strategies. But just the last thing I'll say actually on the relaxation one was one thing that we found in our study that that cue um, that we used to relax the hands and upper body for the runners in our study who are mostly, um, you know, not elite, um, but sort of some very uh, recreational beginner uh, to what we say pretty experienced runners. Um, but we didn't find that that sort of cue actually made them any more efficient. Uh, it did reduce their perception of effort. So I guess taking their mind off their body sensations was, was useful, but it didn't make them any more efficient. So it maybe takes a bit of time to become aware of, you know, hey, I, I'm kind of tense here. Um, so developing that body awareness is part of the learning process. Uh, and then B, um, what do I do when I notice that I am tense? How can I relax? Um, and so that cue to relax your hands, to smile, to drop your shoulders. Um, again, that takes time to learn. Um, and that's the bit, I guess, that that needs a little bit of, of kind of hands-on help um, to become aware and then what to do in, the, in that situation. Right. And, you know, something that you said earlier that uh, really resonates with me. And one of the reasons why this entire subject area is so attractive is that all of these strategies are not very risky. You can go out and do a workout or register for a race and try these cues or mantras or mental strategies. And there's really no risk to you. This isn't like, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, the value of a heavy deadlift to your training, which does have a risk. Or, you know, the value of running 20 miles with the last 10 miles at goal marathon pace. You know, this is not these the physical aspect of running that, you know, we have to do, obviously, to get better. But, you know, all those training decisions that we make have risks and rewards, and many of those risks are injury-related, or it's something that you can't necessarily do today or tomorrow. You have to work your way up to it over months and months. But these strategies, you can implement almost immediately, and there's absolutely no risk. You're not going to get hurt. You can always just try again if you don't think that you know you were uh, 
executing it as properly as you should have. So I think the potential is really high for runners to get a lot of value out of these strategies and also to make them their own to, you know, find what works for them and adapt things slightly so that, you know, it works for them in any kind of workout or race situation that they might be in. Noel, thanks so much for being here. Uh, this this was so interesting. Uh, I, I really consider you someone to be at the forefront of researching the human relationship to endurance-related fatigue and pain. And so this was uh, really, really fascinating to me. And I was hoping that before we signed off for today, if you could summarize your research into just a couple minutes of advice to the average runner, what would you tell that runner? Uh, first of all, thank you. It's, it's, it's been absolutely great um, just, just having this opportunity to, to chat through some of our work. Um, I think, I suppose, broadly to start off with, the, the, the first point would be that what we think about and what we focus our attention on when we run can influence our performance and can influence how that run feels, how, how easier or hard it feels or, or how much we enjoy it. Um, and what I would kind of hope somebody would take from this is is really kind of maybe helping to learn or learning some some steps that will help um, running performance and help trying out some of these skills. So probably a first step is, is become aware, um, become aware of your thoughts. What stories do you tell yourself? Um, how does your body react? How do you feel in terms of things like muscle tension, et cetera, uh, when you're running? Um, and then try some of those strategies that we discussed uh, and how to do they work for you. So try smiling, try relaxing, um, try countering those maybe sometimes negative thoughts that you have and, and things that you say to yourself with more motivational and, and with more positive thoughts. Um, again, we know that they can influence performance and can, can help to, to improve your performance as well. It's kind of three, three stages for me um, that I'll maybe just kind of wrap up on with this. And I think the first is monitoring. Um, so the first is becoming aware of, of what you think about, what you focus on. Um, the second is, is kind of reviewing. So when you're finished a training run, when you're finished a ra- race, normally we kind of think really about our time, especially in a race. We think, oh, gosh, I didn't, you know, I missed my target by three minutes or whatever, but or, or whatever. But actually think about your thoughts. So so what was I focusing on? How did I handle that tricky situation? How, how did I pace it from the very start? Again, pacing is such an important skill in this as well. Did I go too fast at the start? How did I react when, you know, other runners were passing me and, and they were going really fast? Um, so, so review your thoughts and, and kind of learn the positives. You did some very good things, but also um, the negatives. What, what could you do better? And then try those things out in your training. Put yourself back in that situation in training again. So, you know, in, in some of your really tough and uh, maybe interval sessions um, where you will experience those negative thoughts again, try out those different positive uh, thoughts or, or motivational self-talk. Um, try smiling, try relaxing in your training. Because all the time you're building up that backpack Uh, and the last step is plan. So plan for your next race. Then what did you learn from the previous one? What worked? What didn't work? What did you try in your training? What worked? What didn't work? Um, And bring those new skills with you to to your next race um, and have a plan. Have a plan for mile 21 when it's getting really tough. What am I going to say to myself? What am I going to think? Have a plan for mile one. Uh, what am I going to say to myself and how am I going to think when the other runners are going past me? Um, am I going to stick to my pace or am I going to get sort of carried away in, in that sort of sprint off the start? So all these things can be actually really strategically planned and thought about um, and, and ultimately um, to, to help your endurance performance and make your run more enjoyable, I hope. 
Noel, you have made this topic not only really interesting with providing, you know, some of the the science behind the concepts and the strategies that we outlined, but also making it very practical and actionable so that we now can, you know, take some of this material and directly apply it to our running. So thanks so much for your expertise and your time today. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for the opportunity. And that is my conversation with Dr. Noel Brick. I hope that this episode has given you new insights into your own thinking and some ideas for how to experiment with attentional focus during your next race. For even more content on your mindset and how to improve your mental skills, go to strengthrunning.com brain. Now, if you enjoy the Strength Running Podcast, you can support us by supporting our sponsors. I believe in these companies, they help me publish all of these episodes, and they're doing great work for the running community. Inside Tracker is a company that I've been working with for years, and I hope to continue for years to come. They're one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies that you can find. Founded in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data so you can get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. They have an ultra-personalized nutrition platform that helps you understand your body's biomarkers from stress hormones to testosterone to vitamin D can all help you figure out if you're overtraining, undertraining, or if your training is optimal. It can also help you determine if you have a health issue that might be affecting your running so you can get ahead of it early, correct it, and get on with your healthy lifestyle. But the best part is that after they give you these personalized optimal ranges for each one of those biomarkers, if you're outside of those ranges, they have a whole host of ways to improve them through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. So they really take care of you there. Now, I've personally gotten three of their ultimate tests from them, and the process is simple, it's easy, and it's very eye-opening if you haven't done a deep dive on your biomarkers yet. And just a couple months ago, I learned that my cortisol levels were elevated, as well as having some low vitamin D, which can be very common at the tail end of the winter season. So I'm taking some vitamin D supplements now and working to reduce my stress levels. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to see how you can get 25% off site-wide on any personalized blood tests that they offer. Of all the purchases that you can make with your running, this one can actually improve your performances. It's a wonderful opportunity, and you can see all those details at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. I'm also grateful for the support of Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition super simple. Now, I personally struggle with eating healthy. What can I say? Pizza and fries are my kryptonite. So I'm finding their product, AG1, really helpful when I'm training hard, and it's also very convenient if I'm traveling. One scoop a day gives me 75 vitamins and minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, including a greens superfood blend, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in any nutrition gaps in my diet because I know that I have some gaps. And it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. Now that I have all three of my kids in school, I know I've got to support my immune system because I'm no match for little kid germs. But what I love about AG1 is that it changes. Over the last decade, they've made 53 improvements to the formula based on the latest research to make those nutrients more absorbable and more rigorous with the third-party testing that they do. 
go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason. You can see the great offer they've put together for our podcast listeners. You'll get a year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can sign up for a single shipment or a monthly drop if you want to make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to sign up today. All right, that's all for me today, my friends. I'm so grateful for your support, for being part of this community, for your feedback, and of course, for your love of the sport. Until next time.